Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are down in Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready for a different kind of Vegas experience with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Live from the Vegas Strip, welcome to Vegas Never Sleeps. I'm Stephen Maggi. One thing you can say about Las Vegas, it has a fascinating history. And a lot of that has to do with the mob. And when you think of organized crime in Vegas, you have to consider the skim. Skim was just another way to make money, and many mobsters across the country participated in it. Today, you'll learn the who, where, why, and how about the Las Vegas skim from authors Wayne Klingman and Roger Galizzi. Roger and Wayne have been working on this for a while, and boy, what a great book they have. And we're just going to talk about some of the fun things. And today, we'd like to just kind of introduce... Not only Wayne and Roger, but also kind of introduce the subject because it's really more involved than what you might think. And yet, it's a fascinating topic. I've always, I always say it's one of those things where you kind of know about it, you've heard about it, but you, you don't really understand it. Well, these guys explained it. So first of all, let's introduce him. Uh, Wayne, you know him. He's been on uh, radio as Mr. Big. He's an expert on the Milwaukee Mafia. He's written a number of great books. Wayne, what made you decide to uh, do this whole story? And is this kind of one of the favorite stories? Because it kind of felt that way reading it. Well, I have to tell you, I regret in one form, in one way, and I'm very really welcome to the fact that I didn't jump in this after I got done with Frank, my first book in the Mafia. Because Frank, as we all know, had a big role in the skim, a big role in Argent, right, which we'll get into in good due time. But Frank's story could not be told while doing the rest of the skim, and I can find no better person to help me do tell these stories than my co-writer. I mean, Roger is one of the best people I've ever had the honor of meeting. He's more Mount, Mount Vegas than most people on earth ever will know. I can say only good things about him. I'm looking forward one day perhaps even to try some of his dishes because he's a great cook, I understand. And Roger, you, like me, are a California native. Uh, you grew up in Southern California and in the Bay Area, just like I did. Now you live in the suburb of Las Vegas and this is what your passions include, cooking, drinking, gambling, and wine. So what better place to live than Las Vegas? Was this a labor of love for you? It was um, a labor of love in the sense that um, I was really enthusiastic about it. I wouldn't call it a lot of labor, um, although I did uh, uh, the bibliography does have 90 books on the titles of it. Uh, there was a lot of research that went into it. And I was trying to balance a story, so to speak, uh, a narrative, um, and at the same time, not make it too research-like. But it's something I've been interested in for a while. Wayne provided me the opportunity to uh, uh, to get into it and write it and present it. So that yeah, was fun. It was fun doing it. Well, I'm really excited about this. But before we get started with that, I gotta ask you, Roger, because I know I mentioned that you like cooking. Well, you actually wrote a book about it: Italian Wanderings, the Galazzi Family Cookbook. That sounds really good. As a and a person who grew up in an Italian household as well. Is there a lot of veal in there? Because I love veal stuff. Yeah, there is a lot of veal in there, as a matter of fact. So uh, the book right now is on Blurb, and it's going to be on um, – it'll be on Amazon.com uh, relatively soon. 
and uh, volume two is coming out as well. That has a lot of veal dishes in it. Um, uh, also, <laughs> the first book, cook, the first cookbook, it, that truly was a labor of love. I grew up with my grandmother and watched her cook. And uh, when we all reached about our 60s, I started getting text messages from all of my cousins saying, how did Nana make this? How did Nana make that? What did she do for this? And um, I finally decided, well, I might as well write a cookbook for, it was really for my family, but uh, a lot of other people have expressed interest in it as well. Now, we love to hear any of those great Italian families, and I bet your house had a great smell to it, right? The, the smell of sauce wandering through the house? Yeah, the smell of sauce and smell of cheese, Pecorino Romano cheese, yeah. Oh, you're speaking to me. Well, before we get too far off on food, <laughs> let's go ahead and talk about the Las Vegas skim. Now, first of all, Wayne, for anybody that doesn't know about the skim, kind of why don't you sum up what exactly is it, and does everybody do it, or did it, I should Good say? Good question. Does everybody do it? Uh, well, that's a whole debatable question. A lot of casinos did do it. Some we know about. Many more probably did that we don't know about. Basically, what the scam is, is you take some money. It's like one for the government, one for me. One for the government, two for me sort of thing, right? You take money before it's properly counted and before taxes are paid for it. Paid on it as we all want to pay our taxes, right? We all want to do that, right? Some people, not so much, right? It was their way of getting around the taxation problem and making sure the people behind these casinos, some of these investors being the ma- people of the mafia, right, got their money and then some on top of that, basically in a nutshell. You guys specifically center on the Las Vegas Strip, and I think that's important. We all assume everybody knows what it is, and we've seen it in movies and stuff, but Roger, kind of explain, you know, you live there, you know. What is the Las Vegas Strip? How does it differ from, say, downtown or other areas around town or, or really anywhere else in America? Well, one of the unique aspects of the Strip is the Las Vegas Strip is not in Las Vegas. It's in incorporated Clark County, and there's a reason for that historically. So if you look at Russell Road on the south end and you look at Sahara on the north end as the Las Vegas Strip, where Sahara uh, is is where the city of Las Vegas actually starts. And most casino uh, builders and owners in the very, very early 30s and 40s did not want to build inside the city of Las Vegas because, A, they would have to pay municipal taxes, and, B, at that time, uh, the city of Las Vegas also was a granting authority for licenses, and some people couldn't get licenses because they already had felonies on their uh, conviction records from other states. So, what, so did you have to just deal with the state then? How did, how did that work for getting those well, gambling licenses? In the very, very beginning, um, the structure of uh, approving gaming licenses was very loose or different uh, or not as mature as it is now with the uh, gambling board, the gaming board, and the gaming commission. And, so in the beginning, licenses were a little bit easier to come by. And also in the beginning, as we bring out in the book, Las Vegas and the state of Nevada were a little bit defensive about a reputation about criminal elements being in uh, uh, Las Vegas. And so we did concentrate on the Strip because those are primarily casinos that people would recognize the names of them and the history of them. The other part of this, of course, which everybody knows, and this is the part that people start getting excited about – 
are the families, the names. And, and boy, you pick up the book, and the, one of the first things, you got this great chart, and you hear these family names that really anybody that's watched a Godfather movie or any of those things or is just interested in knows. I mean, this is a part of it. And it seems to me like they all were a part of it. Is that true, guys? I would say yes, most of them were, absolutely. Yeah, I think there's a couple of families that at one time or another were sort of on the outskirts and never really got involved in uh, the skim. But at some time or another, the skim touched just about every major uh, crime family across the United States. There are a couple exceptions to the rule. One of them notably is the the Los Angeles uh, crime family was never involved in the skim. Yeah, that was a part that was interesting, and the book kind of talks about it. How did they miss that? <laughs> you know, the one one uh, group that decided to stay out of it. Well, you know, it's kind of an interesting story in, in my mind because I think it's actually worth a whole other book. Not a lot has been written about the at that time the Dragna crime family. They had some interest in illegal gambling offshore uh, during the the time in which they were gambling boats off the coast of Santa Monica, but uh, in the early years. You had to have money to invest in a casino uh, to, in other words, get part of the skim back. And so if you didn't have a lot of money to invest in the casino, you just didn't get into the skim at the time. This is before, of course, you could go to the Teamsters to get uh, loans to get into casino business. But uh, at the time, you had to put in the mob, had to put in their own money um, that they cobbled together from a variety of families and a variety of gamers from uh, when gambling was illegal who still had profits or people who had profits left over from prohibition. Well, you know, Wayne, you talk a lot about that. We, we've gone over that a couple of times in some of your books. I mean, it's, it's whether it's unions, whether it's various religious groups and so forth. There's all sorts of places. Huh? That money is being floated around. It's, it's really fascinating the way that works. Well, absolutely. I mean, one thing you have to give it to the mafia is they know... Yeah, it's nice to get that money from whatever our source. It's nice to also have that money coming from legitimate means. So the only way they can take that money and invest it in something that will pay them back, they're going to do it. Absolutely going to do it. And I think that, as Roger so well stated, it, the history of the mafia in Los Angeles is very interesting because, yes, they had a big deal to do with offshore gambling conceals, but also bit them in the ass in major ways. I don't think they were able to recover from those situations that they found themselves involved in in California when they declined their gambling bills. Well, that's one of the things about gambling, too. You, you don't go in there and just kind of play it by luck, just in the same way that you don't win big money uh, bringing a quarter to Las Vegas, right? I mean, you got to bring some money to it, and, and ultimately it was the mishandling of money that got some of the people like uh, Bugsy Siegel and so forth in trouble. One of the points uh, that, are, that the book tries to make originally in the prologue is that um, casinos make money without skimming. Um, there's a natural edge to the house, and everybody knows that. That's why these large corporations operate casinos now, because they realize how profitable they are. These palaces you see, the Venetian, Caesars, and Wynn, um, those aren't built by donations. They're built by casino profits that are pr- put back into the buildings and the construction. But when you're faced, even if you're a, an executive, when you're faced with stacks and stacks and stacks of $100 bills, something else besides corporate accounting clicks in, and that's human nature, and that's called greed. It's sort of like tipping, isn't it? I mean, in the sense that people that get, people that get tips, 
sit there and go, well, okay, I'm going to put down that I got maybe uh, 20 bucks when really I was tipped 60 bucks or whatever. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, we do start out in the book talking about the fact that skimming isn't just a Las Vegas phenomenon. Skimming happens all over the world many times. In even the average uh, average small business owner, anytime you deal in cash, there's yeah. a chance that there's skimming going on. And it could be anything from um, not reporting all your tips or when you um, are sharing tips uh, with a, a shift of workers and you don't put uh, everything that you cleared off the table into the jar. Uh, that's a form of skimming. And if you've ever seen anybody make change on top of the cash register instead of in the cash register. They're probably skimming. And um, a lot of people have said over the years that many of the high rollers that come to Las Vegas probably deal in cash businesses themselves. Really? So those whales actually know a little bit about it to begin with? You know, when these big guys come to Vegas with money in their pockets, they're not kids. They know what's going on. And they're in an environment, let's call it Sin City, which I think is a very good name for, for Vegas. You know, they know what's going on. They're not going to complain too much as long as they get treated well. Why would they bother? Why would they, why would they care? It, it, it's just really embezzlement 101, right? I mean, it's the very beginning of just how to embezzle money. I mean, there's other ways to do it, too, but this is like the easy way. Yeah, by far. Before we move on, let's talk about one other thing. People see this, and I know, Roger, you have the same last kind of last name that I do, and it's in a vowel. And, you know, for a long time, people thought the only people in the mafia were Italians. But as your book points out, yeah, there were some Italians, but there was all sorts of very ethnicities, huh? Yes, and uh, matter of fact, uh, in particular with Las Vegas and the skim, there was a large number of uh, Jewish organized uh, crime members, and uh, obviously Bugsy Siegel being one, um, and the, the list just goes on and on. Meyer Lansky, uh, but yes, a lot of the a lot of the people that came into the skim were not, in fact, um, Italians. So I think that's important to realize that, uh, although not made men, uh, these Jewish gangsters, uh, Jewish mobsters, were associates of the crime families, and so kind of interesting history but yes there's a lot of people who are not italian involved yes you know i wanted to ask you too i remember from goodfellas that was one of the deals that you had to be italian to be a made man and so when you get people like siegel or lansky and some of these folks was the idea to just reach a high enough point where you could really make a lot of money you weren't trying to take over the family but just to get a high enough place where you could get uh, some real power yes and i think it's also important to realize that there are some mob families, quote-unquote mob families, that were not Italian. Um, Meyer Lansky um, at several times um, referred to his collection or associates as a family as well. That's that's really interesting. Well, you know, uh, Wayne, we've talked a lot about Meyer Lansky, and I got a quote from the book that said, this is uh, attributed to Lansky. The only man who wins in the casino is the guy who owns the place. And th- so that was kind of the idea of these guys, too. I mean, right? They knew they could make money on this type of thing. And that's why, like you say, like people like Frank Ballesteri, who you wrote about and so forth, and people in other parts of the country were interested in getting their hands in here because they knew they were the folks that were going to make the money. Oh, I, thought, I, thought, I mean, all the kinds of money, too. You got the gambling, you got prostitution. 
But it was also a big moneymaker. I mean, again, going back to the idea, that I love the idea, mind you, of Vegas being Sin City. You got there, you could do what you wanted to do. As long as you weren't too much trouble, you can do what you wanted to do. And why not charge them the money necessary so that the big guy come from Chicago, have that weekend, and make him have everything he possibly could want. Good food, good gambling, good games, good girls. Make that money. Yeah, and, and it's kind of changed a little in the sense that as they now run these as legit businesses across the board, big corporations, it's still about making money, but it, it seems like they're trying to get into other things like sports and stuff. Yep, In those days, all the things you were talking about, whether it's entertainment that was there or uh, the prostitution, whatever, it was all to keep these guys happy so they kept gambling, right? And, of course, the prostitution they made money on as well. But Absolutely. They want you to stay in that casino. You still see it today, and if you ever fly into Las Vegas on a Friday night, you see a certain type of visitor for the weekend. You also know that uh, casinos give out drinks generously. There's a reason for that. Um, they're just trying to increase their uh, profit centers any way that they can. Now that it's a more of a, a diversified profit-making organization, they make money off of everything, whether it's uh, the gift shop, uh, spas, entertainment, restaurants, all of that. Uh, so gaming is now just one part of it, whereas um, 40 or 50 years ago, it was a much, much, much smaller part of it. Matter of fact, most of the things that they now expect to make a profit on used to be loss leaders, like inexpensive buffets or comp meals or 99-cent or even 59-cent shrimp cocktails and all that kind of stuff. It had a different feel back then. I mean, you live there now, Roger, like you're saying, and you can go in and they take care of people. There's no question about it. But in those days, people would remember your names. I mean, and like you say, if you were gambling, everything else was pretty much taken care of. I mean, you, you could eat for free or, or for very little. You know, you could go see shows and they were handing out free things. And I guess that's why some people kind of miss those days. I have a conversation recently with an actual member of the Teamsters. He's a, um, one of the business officials for the Teamsters. And he is recalling to me the days when if you just walked into a certain casino, uh, and there were many of them, and you just showed your Teamsters card, you got a free room. Yeah, that was a, that was something. And, you know, Wayne, you, you get that same feeling, too. I know you live in the Midwest, and yet, like everyone else, you know that Las Vegas has a certain appeal. It's got a different culture. Definitely. If I had my feathers, Las Vegas would be the place to go for a period of time and let little, and let little hair I have out, right? Go there and have that fun. Go there and be Mr. Big. I think it would be my life, in, in fact, you know, I, I'm thinking all the fun you could have there, legal fun, right? Gambling, you know, flirt with the girls, stuff like that, have the good food. Enjoy yourself. That is what I think of Las Vegas. That's what I think of, a place to go and have fun and not be you for that period of time that you're there. Well, they call it the adult Disneyland, and i got to say, much like Disneyland, the Disney Corporation, they're interested in making a lot of money, and they did. And you guys, right, you, you say that the skim was probably the largest planned, orchestrated, protected theft of untaxed and unaccounted for cash. I mean, I love that. Do you have any idea, and you can both throw in uh, what you think, I mean, do you have any idea how much money we're talking about and how deep this went? I looked at this from a variety of different ways, trying to figure out if I could come up with a dollar figure. And at one time in the manuscript, I had it highlighted in yellow, figure out a figure. Um, but it was just impossible to do. 
just impossible to do. There are, there are some examples of what estimates have been for certain periods of time when the government could figure out when a skim started and when a skim stopped. Um, but over the life of Las Vegas, virtually impossible to do. These guys were so good at, at hiding some of this stuff, and everybody was doing it. I mean, there's just no way to get a handle on it, I guess, from a law enforcement point of view. Well, they really want to get a handle on it. I mean, I think if we get to the chapters where we talk about Howard Hughes, I think something we should be looking into is, was Howard Hughes even sane at the time? Was he operating as Howard Hughes, a multimillionaire, billionaire at that time? Or is he a front operation by the CIA? That's a very interesting question, which, of course, I think we'll bring up in that conversation. If that's the case, that's a lot of money. A lot of money. You've got this thing going on. It went on for decades. And you write in the book, it's kind of mind-boggling because you're seeing all these other cities that have got a piece of the action here and so forth. Was this something that if you were in the underworld, you wanted to find a way to get a piece of this action? Because it seems like, you know how they talk about pieces of pie, but this pie seems almost unlimited. You can keep, Everybody can get a piece of it. As long as you could build a casino and, um, and make it um, a successful casino. Remember that you had to have a successful casino to have a skim because you had to have a profit there. And of course, some casinos were not successful because the skim was too large. But remember, during Prohibition and after Prohibition, these mobsters were running illegal casinos all over the United States. And that money was also being skimmed. By, and by skimming, we mean not reported to the IRS. So when the opportunity arose to say, like, I can go to Las Vegas after 1931 and do everything I was doing in Cleveland, Detroit, Miami, New York, Chicago, Kansas City, all those places where I was running illegal operations, I can actually go to Las Vegas and do it, and it's legit. So how important is it, guys, to have that really competent manager? I'm not talking about the criminal or the guy whacking somebody. I'm talking about somebody that actually runs the place, the organization guy in there. I would imagine it was really important and how much did they know about it? I mean, did they did they let them get in the middle of it, or was it something they kind of hid? Well, we had examples of some people that were managers that knew exactly what was going on. We didn't show up one of those guys, not long, not long ago, sir. The guy from Arizona went yeah. to Vegas, ran a couple of casinos for a while, then decided to skim his own little business share and got killed for his troubles. Yeah, some of them knew. Some of them didn't know. I think most of them knew. I agree. I think most of them uh I think most of them knew there were some people who were hired specifically to run a casino because they were good at the skim. Um, and they were good at it from two perspectives. They were good at seeing how the money got out of the casino, but they were also good at seeing that the employees didn't cheat on the skim themselves. And so some people were hired for that specific skill uh, and others were hired for other reasons. I think later there has been an argument at some point that, some people thought they didn't know about the skim um, towards in the 70s. There was a couple arguments that some people didn't know about the skim. But I think, in general, uh, most people knew. You think about Las Vegas, and they, all, they still are, and they've always been incredible in terms of security. they got cameras everywhere. They're looking at everything. And they're looking as much for the cheaters' uh, customers as they are, maybe even more so. They're looking at some of their employees to make sure everybody's on the up and up. Was part of that because 
you mentioned before they had, you know, they could make a lot of money. I mean, they, you could just make money opening one of these things. The odds in your favor, but then you had the scam. But you had to make sure if too many people are doing it, the whole thing comes down like uh, like a house of cards. You know, you, you can only do that for so long, and it falls apart. Right, because yeah. some casinos uh, overskimmed, and uh, those it seems to me are fairly obvious which ones in their history um, overskimmed, and. I think that's probably partly because people, meaning mobsters in other cities, had a certain dollar value expectation, not percent expectation. And so when revenue wasn't coming in as high and the, the skin was still the same every month, uh, even though you weren't attracting as many people as the casino across the street, you saw some casinos fail earlier than others. Yeah, and I guess greed just got in the way, right? I mean, that was the one thing you had to be, you know, you, you, you know, why not just sit there and take the nice, smooth, uh, continuing money instead of going for the big hit because you draw attention to it, and that's where you have problems. Well, the Manhattan families were very careful of who they sent to Las Vegas. They needed to trust the people in Vegas that they had on the ground and make sure they weren't stealing too much money. And that was the role of Forcer. Well, let's 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 switch now from the mob to specifically. The hotels, or the property, the casinos, they, they all had a part of this. You guys talk about it. I guess if what I read correctly from what you guys are, the, the two best at it were the Desert Inn and the Stardust. Is that about right? Yes. The the Desert Inn um, was an opportunity for the mob to get in right from the very beginning. Uh, a, a classic story that's repeated over and over in the book and in the history of Las Vegas is somebody – with a good intention, comes in to build a casino and they run out of money. And the only place they can get money from is not going to be a bank. It's going to be from some quote-unquote investors um, with last names with and without vowels. And, um, and so when that happens, the quid pro quo for I'll loan you the money is, but this guy is going to run the casino and be in charge of the cage and the count room. There is so much to this, and we're going to cover this in the weeks ahead, but let's kind of close up. I want to talk about what the process looked like, and the process is really interesting because you got people let's, – let's start with the operational level, and let's, let's bring it through, guys. So uh, first, you know, you talked about the head guy, the guys that figured these things out and kind of supervised it. Were these always the head guys, or again, did – did they go and usually have one person that they made that that was their responsibility? Usually it was one person who kind of oversaw all of that. A lot of the times they actually lived in the casino so they could skim during every shift. These places where they did it, there was nothing glamorous or anything, right? These were, as I understand it, kind of dark, dingy rooms. And the idea is you, you want to have as few people to see it as possible. Yes. The count rooms are pretty bare and... Uh, they're not uh, to be confused with a, ca a cashier cage, but a count room is a pretty bare place where people just count money and stacks of it. And, of course, there's a variety of different ways that we go over in the book uh, about how money leaves the count room, um, and it can leave in a, a variety of ways. The most common, probably, um, as uh, Joey Augusto put it, likes to do it the old-fashioned way. I like to just walk in and pick up the money and leave. Um, uh and so that's probably the number one way that cash was removed. But there are, are myriad other ways that uh, uh, you could get at, uh, at hard-cold hard cash uh, besides the count room itself. And we'll talk about that in the future. Yeah, well, Wayne, I know you guys talk about couriers. 
Is is that something where, you know, again, it was one of those special jobs. You had to have people you could really trust, and that's all they did? Or how did that work for these couriers? That's all they did. And interesting is um, there's a man in Vegas that just wrote a book. I'd be coming out very quickly. It talks about his brother, who was a New York City police detective, who's hired by the five, five families to go to Vegas and pick up their share of the skim and drive it back to New York to spread the around. Because who's on staff? A policeman. The courier was a very important position, and the person you sent to do that job had to be absolutely trustworthy to know that they were going to bring back money to you, and that takes them out money out for themselves. Yeah, <laughs> that was it was big money. I know in the book you get into all sorts of uh, of things like that, but one thing I wanted to ask you just up front, and we'll get into much more detail about it. But from what I understand. Uh, Back then, there were wiretaps, too, and they were illegal, but people were doing them. He said there was one. Tell the story, if you would, about the Desert Inn. I mean, those are names that you remember, like Sam Giancana, scary guy, Meyer Lansky, and others. Well, yeah, so the FBI had been uh, illegally wiretapping a variety of casinos and uh, for some time, and they couldn't use any of the evidence. So there's always this little disconnect between what the FBI actually knew and what they claimed they knew, uh, and I kind of go through that in a few quotes with the prologue about J. Edgar Hoover's um, attitude towards uh, Las Vegas skimming and, and his attitude towards organized crime, um, in particular in America. Uh, that's a whole other volume to probably write. Um, but uh, they illegally tapped uh, the, uh, the Desert Inn, and then when they approached the the government in Nevada, um, Governor Grant Sawyer was just furious. How dare you say that we have a criminal element in Las Vegas? If there is any whatsoever, it's very, very small. And that was the state of Nevada's attitude for a great many years. Back in the day, they they wiretapped my guy Frank's girlfriend's apartment, right? And when when Jagger found out they did that, he ordered them to destroy the tapes and destroy all that evidence. Because he said, you don't do that. So Nevada was, uh, for a long time, kind of cool about all this stuff, right? I mean, uh, I, I get, when did they start getting like, hey, we can't do this anymore? Was that kind of uh, the post-Kennedy days with all that stuff, or did it come even later than that? Or was it pr- like the Howard Hughes times? Um, Howard Hughes and later than that. So what happened is people started, the FBI in particular, uh, and some other federal organizations start understanding exactly the power of the RICO statutes um, and the organized crime laws that were put into place. And so they understood what they could do for tapping, what was probable cause to go ask a judge for permission to go tap. And uh, that's why um, the movie Casino, um, which a large part of it has to do with the skim, um, is so well documented is because by that time, all of the wiretapping was legal. And so all of those transcripts are now available for people to, uh, to read. And um, that, the, what was bugged was just incredibly um, amazing what people said on the phone and in restaurants and uh, in private clubs and things like that. But uh, that's why um, the later skims in the uh, 70s, um, to, uh, especially in the 70s, um, were so well documented, and that was kind of the genesis for the movie Casino. 
a great movie and a great book. You got to read if you like that movie or any of the Goodfellas or anything. You have to get a hold of this book. I'm telling you, it's the same name as the podcast. It's like an onion, the Las Vegas scam. You can go to Amazon. They have a nice little write up on there. I tell you what. It's really worth your time, and it's going to be a lot more than the write-up. The detail that you guys got into is just fascinating to me. Wayne, you also have a role-playing game that you want to talk about, too, and I want to share that with the audience. So what have you got, and how do we find out about it? Um, My role-playing game is in Gumroad. Um, You search for the name of it, which is Sin City of the Dead, and the game you help our good friend Frank Bell defend his casino against a zombie horde, which is decided in Las Vegas. It's a campy game you meant to be played at your desk, at your tabletop after supper, over a couple beers with your friends, with a couple field to six-sided dice, some pens and pencils, and a nice imagination. It's a fun game. It's only five bucks. It's not. It's not pretty. It's not very expensive. I think a good investment. Have a good time with your friends. I absolutely love that. You know that would be a cool game for people. Uh, you know if you. Dungeons and Dragons, you're kind of a nerd, but if you play this, that's really pretty, pretty cool. Uh, so one more time, Wayne, where can we get it? If you go to gumroad.com, and you go to the search bar, and you search, you search for the title of the game, which is Sin City of the Dead, and you'll find the game. It's right there. Or you look for the poster. The poster should be obviously visible when you search for the name of the game, and posters should come up as well. And you cannot mistake the poster for the game. Not a doubt. You will know it when you see it 100%. And Roger, these days, besides writing this book, what are you involved with? I know you you know, you know, like doing all this stuff. That second cookbook going to come out pretty soon? second cookbook will be out by uh, Christmas this year during the holidays. And uh, actually, a third cookbook will be coming out at that time, too. So uh, one is um, on the Italian side of my family, and the other cookbook is on the American side of my family. So um, uh, that's going to keep me busy from now until then. We'll probably have a second edition of this book out in the spring. Um, with a couple of uh, more in-depth chapters on a few people uh, involved in the skim, and uh, that's keeping me busy uh, for now. Thanks, guys. Remember, you can get a copy of Like an Onion at Amazon.com, and the boys will check on that.